Well, this evening we're looking at the life of Tertullian and uh, seeing what we can learn from what happened to him. But before we look at him, I'm going to show you a picture of, this is the Abbey of the Holy Trinity in Venosa in southern Italy. It may look, at first glance, like uh, a ruin, a bit like Kirksville Abbey or Fountains Abbey, <coughs> but it's not, actually, not exactly. The reason that it doesn't have a roof and that it's left like this is not actually that it's gone into ruin, but that it was never finished. It was started around the 11th century, and apparently was truly groundbreaking in its time. Uh, it was a French-style abbey, but made with Italian materials and expertise. But in the end, it was never finished. So instead of being a historical masterpiece, it's a virtually unknown building to most people. Now, Tertullian, in many ways, is like that building. He started so well, he was a groundbreaker, but he didn't finish well, as we'll see. And the first thing we're going to see about Tertullian is a bit about his life uh, before his conversion. He was a, a lawyer, Tertullian the lawyer. He lived around 155 uh, AD to about 220 AD. And he grew up in a place called Carthage in northern Africa, modern-day Tunisia. It was the second city of the Roman or Western Roman Empire. And it was a sort of real melting pot of cultures that he grew up in. Tertullian was a native Latin speaker, though he could also speak Greek and some other local languages, but sort of shame with him. But Tertullian is known as the first significant Latin Christian thinker and writer. Before him, most of the action was in Greek, and most of the big guys were from Asia Minor. Tertullian changed that and began the move towards uh, the West. He didn't become a Christian until he was about 30 years old. And before that, he'd been a pagan lawyer. When he became a Christian, he put his reasoning skills to use in defence of Christianity. Especially in the early days with a view of um, ending Christian persecution in the Roman Empire. He wanted to see that stop uh, across the empire. So he argued that since Christians were good citizens, paid their taxes, and prayed for the emperor, they were exactly the sort of people that the empire should want. That's what he wrote. And like Justin Martyr, who died around the time he was born, he refuted some of the myths and the misunderstandings about Christianity for a pagan audience. He spent some of his time in North Africa and some of his time in Rome. It's disputed whether he had an official position in any church, but he was a big writer for church audiences. He wrote 31 books which have survived uh, to this day, but we know that he wrote at least 19 more uh, that's sort of mentioned in other people's books. He wrote against some of the heresies of his day, using his skills as a lawyer to forensically sort of take them apart. He wrote against some uh, favourite heretics that you might have heard of, that we've seen so far in our ones on church history. For example, Marcion, who only believed that the Old Testament, uh, believed the Old Testament was wrong, and that only the New Testament should be listened to, and then only bits of Paul. And he wrote against other heretics in his book, Against Heretics, which is a great title for a book, Against Heretics. But Tertullian was more known, though, for being Tertullian the Trinitarian. What he was most famous for was his book against a guy called Praxis, um, who was around sort of before his time, but had left his mark in Rome. And in that book, we have the first recorded mention of the word Trinity, the idea, of course, was there before, but this book is the first use of that term uh, and sort of expands on the idea. I say that it's the first use, but actually when you read it, I read a bit of it this week, 
Uh, the way he uses it makes it sound like people would understand what he was saying, as though this was actually a term that was already uh, being used, but his is the first recording of it down on paper. He also uses other words that will become very normal in the discussion of the Trinity. So person, essence, economy. And really it would seem that we have Tertullian to thank for bringing these concepts together and helping future authors describe who God is. He even wrote things like that God was tres personae una substantia, which I'm told means three persons, one substance, which we consider completely orthodox to this day. In his day, this was breaking new ground in language, explaining the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, though of course the idea is there in the Bible. He firmly opposed a heresy of his day that was becoming widespread, that's one of the reasons that he was writing the book. And that heresy was called monarchianism. Now this is not to be confused with liking Charles and Camilla, that's monarchism, this is monarchianism. And monarchianism is the idea that God is one indivisible being, a monarch, one rule. The most popular version of this is monarchian modalism. Sorry about the long words this evening. But it's that idea that God has just three modes rather than being three persons. So you might see him in father mode and then in son mode and then in spirit mode. But they're like different masks that the one God wears. That's a monarchian modalism. But Tertullian in his book takes this idea apart with a lot of skill. And arguments that actually can easily use today. Um, so, one of the arguments he uses, for example, is those little snippets of language that we see between the persons of the Trinity in the Bible. I found this a really sort of helpful way of thinking about it. So, Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he said, if you believe in what that guy's teaching, then that becomes, I said to me, I am my son, today I have begotten me. Doesn't make any sense, does it? Or in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, becomes, I said to me, self, sit down at the right hand of myself until I make my enemies my own footstool for myself. It just doesn't make sense, does it? All that, though, is not to say that Tertullian had a fully developed view of the Trinity as we understand it now. The way he sometimes talks about God the Son makes it appear like he only really becomes a person in his own right just before creation. And sometimes he makes it sound as though the Son is inferior to the Father. He does want to grant him eternal existence in God as the Word, but he speaks of him as unexpressed, so to speak, until creation. But that means the Father only really became a Father in a true sense at creation, which we disagree with. The Father has always been a Father, and you can't have a Father without a Son. Interestingly, Tertullian makes that point himself in the book, but doesn't seem to join up the dots. Uh, he's sort of like that all the way through. He sort of comes out with these amazing statements and then just doesn't quite add it all up. The same is true when it comes to how the Father and the Son relate to each other. At points he makes it sound like the Son is inferior to the Father, but he uses illustrations that a generation later would be used to show that that's not correct. It's a bit infuriating as you read through. He's sort of wanting to get there. He's almost there. So close. But then we've got to remember that he had not had the advantage of centuries of clever minds mulling over these issues. And he was literally coming up with the language as he was writing it. He's got less, much less history to go on. And that led Tertullian into some strange places. So finally, Tertullian the Tearaway. 
As the son got older, he got very upset about what he perceived as the laxness of the church at large. He believed that moral standards were slipping and that forgiveness was being offered too freely to Christians. There are all sorts of mixed up ideas at this time about how baptism fitted into the Christian life. And Tertullian argued that Christians could only be forgiven one more serious sin after they'd been baptised. Eventually in his life he took that number to zero. So if you sinned seriously, you were out. Interestingly, he didn't believe in infant baptism. But that was more because he believed that it was unwise. Because it gave you more time to commit a sin that you couldn't be forgiven for after baptism. So don't use him as an early Trudeau-Baptist. He's not that. He's just trying to delay it so that you don't accidentally sin and lose your place in heaven. Tertullian began to be attracted to a group that called themselves the New Prophecy. History calls them Montanists, after their founder Montanus, or Montanus, if I don't know how you want to pronounce it. He was sympathetic to them for a long time, and eventually joined them when he got older. Montanists had a strict moral code, which is in part seen to be what attracted Tertullian. He thought, everyone else is going lax, these guys have got moral standards, I'll go with them. But they went beyond what the Bible said. So things like they didn't allow remarriage, even for a widow. They had long fasts through the year. Celibacy was sort of held up as the ideal. And they called themselves the spiritual, and referred to mainstream believers as the carnal. Way to sort of help, you know, relations with one another, isn't it? Try and try that. But Montanus believed as well that Montanus, their leader, was the comforter that was promised in John's Gospel. That God spoke through him and two women called Priscilla and Maximilla. And they spoke in a way that could supersede what Jesus or John or Paul had written in the Bible. Other people in the movement prophesied as well. And their prophetic meetings were apparently chaotic affairs. And the people prophesying would lose control and appear possessed by a spirit or the spirit. Other people wrote about them suspiciously because of this. Claiming that in the church this was never how prophecy had worked, even in New Testament times. But because of this sort of prophetic influence, um, they were compared, often compared with modern prophetic movements that have sort of similar characteristics. If you want an example of some of their prophecies, one of them was that the New Jerusalem would come down in Asia Minor, in Turkey. But Nad would be happy with that, wouldn't he? Nad's a Turkish friend of ours. Um, the town where he just happened to be from. He renamed the town Jerusalem in anticipation that either it would become or would host the New Jerusalem. But the movement died out, and actually there's no longer even a town there where he said that it would come. Tertullian doesn't seem to have been, sorry, Tertullian doesn't seem to have been much into the craziness of the prophecy, but saw it as an opportunity to clarify what was in scripture. If you could have someone who said, this is what it means. And his later writings appealed to the new prophecy as a group that back up what he was writing against various other heresies. In some areas, the group remained a movement within the mainstream church, so you could sort of find them there on a Sunday morning. In other areas, they were excommunicated and formed their own fellowship. It would seem by the end of his life, he had founded his own branch of Montanism, which continued at least until Augustine's day, who were imaginatively called the Tertullians. Um, great name, isn't it? Just says it on the tin, doesn't it? But he did go on to influence many other Christians after him, especially through his early writings. Due to his descent into Montanism, though, he's been sort of held at arm's length by the church through the ages. 
So whilst you might have St. Augustine, St. Jerome, St. Ambrose, if you like, in those traditions, he's not St. Tertullian. His bad ending tainted his whole life's work. That said, other church fathers, such as Cyprian, would follow him uh, in Carthage and refer to him as the master, and repeatedly read his books every day. So what lessons can we see uh, from uh, what we've seen? Well, firstly, God is most definitely a trinity. Tertullian didn't get it all right, but he certainly did a brilliant demolition job on the other views. He did a wonderful job in that book. He gives us shorthand to talk about the three-in-one nature of God, and he gave us terms which last to this day to describe in part what we mean by God being trinity, three persons, one essence. And for that, we owe him a debt of gratitude. In some circles, though, this kind of thing is looked down on, this sort of extra-biblical language. The doctrine of the Trinity is looked down on precisely because you can trace the word back to someone. If you chat to Job's Witnesses, for example, they say, oh, you can trace the word back. <coughs> but this extra-biblical language is actually, is actually helpful, isn't it? There's something to be commended to say, yes, we just need the Bible. But the problem going forward from here in church history is that the heretics affirm the Bible as well. They're not saying the Bible isn't true, they're saying that it means something else. So when it says Jesus Christ is the Son of God, they agree. But they take Son of God to mean something different to everybody else. So sometimes these extra words can actually clarify what we mean um, by what's there in the Bible. And Tertullian gave us some of those words for the triune nature of God. So he's, uh, God is most definitely a trinity, and we, we can help to see that through Tertullian. Secondly, though, prophecy over scripture does not end well. His move to Montanism was not a good move. Whilst at the time it was a movement within the church in many places, it soon became clear that when you have a doctrine that new prophetic pronouncements can supersede scripture, that your movement can go anywhere, because you can announce anything is true. All you need is a few dodgy prophecies, and your movement is suddenly outright heretical. There are a variety of opinions over prophecy and whether it happens in the same way as the prophets in the New Testament today. But even in the New Testament, prophecies were to be tested. So 1 Thessalonians 5, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Or 1 Corinthians 14, 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. That doesn't sound like they're writing New Testament scripture, does it? Personally, I think what's in mind there, in Corinthians especially, is more what we'll do in a few minutes of bringing share, as we share with one another and bounce off one another as we look into God's word together. But when we say there can be new authoritative prophecy, we leave the door open to heresy. Mormonism, for example, started with someone claiming new prophecy. Islam started with someone claiming new prophecy. If it can supersede the Bible, it's bad news. And then finally, it's important to finish well. We had read to us earlier, didn't we, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'll read just a part of it to us again. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. 
Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for my ministry. Paul, we see here, finished well. He fought the good fight. He finished the race. He stayed on the true path. But we also see from this passage that not all did. Demas, as far as we know, did not finish the race. The exact circumstances of the other ones leaving, we're not sure about. Tertullian did some amazing things, but he did not finish well. He spent the last years of his life commending Montanus to Christians, rather than commending Christ to pagans. Who knows, if he'd have spent those extra years thinking about the Trinity, thinking about more about explaining those things to people, perhaps he could have made those last few connections that he didn't quite make. So let's not make his mistake. Let's not just start well, but finish well. Let's press on to the end, not turn aside to other things. Let's not be like that unfinished building that we saw at the beginning that never got the ending right. But let's keep going, keep trusting, keep witnessing, keep believing in our wonderful triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the examples of the life of Tertullian. Father, thank you for the gifts that he gave the church in the language that we can use to describe you. But Father, we pray that we wouldn't fall into the same errors as Tertullian. Father, help us not to um, go astray. Father, help us not to start well but finish badly. Father, help us as we get older, as we grow in our Christian faith, to stay on the true path, to stick to the truth. And Father, stick to you. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.